there's a, a fundamental tension in every human heart. We all experience it whether we know it or not. Many of us might experience this tension because we were raised perhaps in, in the church. We, we grew up in, a, uh, in an environment where we were attending church on a routine basis, but we've walked away from that and find ourselves with these sort of uh, echoes in the chamber of our minds that are calling us back in some ways to the God that we heard about uh, on felt boards in Sunday school, maybe. Um, this is the, the, the tension is between whether or not God will be God in my life or I will be God in my life. That's a pretty basic way of describing a, 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 one of the most fundamental foundational tensions that we read about from cover to cover in the book that we call the Bible. For some of us, it may be that we're actually continuing to walk with Jesus right now, but we're finding ourselves tempted and struggling with things that we want to do, but we're not sure he wants us to do them. And so there is an ongoing wrestling with who will be God in my life. Maybe for some of you who are uh, not as familiar with the church and uh, are just asking questions about Jesus, it might be just the issue of conscience. That we walk and live in a certain way, we behave in a certain way, we do certain things, and they don't sit well with us. And we're not really sure why, because these things seem to attract us to, to, for, for whatever reason, but, but there's something that, that doesn't stop uh, voicing itself in our minds from our conscience that's, that's that's really the struggle that's going on, even if we can't name it, between who's going to be God. Is it God or is it me? And this struggle between God being God or me being God is something that gets magnified, intensified, focused on in those moments when the things that we expect, our expectations or our longings or our desires go unfulfilled or unmet. When those expectations are let down, the question of whether or not God will be God or I will be God takes on a new kind of intensity in our lives. Uh, Mandy and I have a friend that spent her um, childhood years growing up in the church and, and uh, was a self-professed Christian in an evangelical church in the Midwest and um, went into her first year in college and spent that time in a, in a ministry on a campus somewhere in, in, uh, in the Midwest and, and participated in the worship and the life of a college community and then spent her second year abroad in France. And during that second year abroad, she encountered just an incredible amount of, of loneliness and depression. And one of her close friends was stricken with a, with, with a serious illness. And she was living in a fairly... A secular environment in Europe and came to this point and she recounted this to me later um, is still a friend where she said I just realized that I didn't need God anymore and it was this kind of expectations for a life to be a certain way and when I found my life to be different when I found my life to be full of struggle and despair when I found the, the people around me suffering in ways that I couldn't understand all of the sudden God became of no more use to me. And he was jettisoned. That's a, an illustration of this, this point of when our expectations for what life is going to be don't happen, that this question of who will be God, me or God, actually be becomes more pronounced for us in our lives. So the question is, what about us? 
What about us? Will, will we resign? Will we take the advice of Job's friends, curse God and die, they say, when they encounter this kind of um, inexplicable situation, this is kind of dissonance between what they long for and what they hope for and what's actually happening in Job's life for Job. Our, our readings from the Gospel of Luke tonight actually start with everything going really well in Luke 19. Uh, Palm Sunday, which is the day that we're celebrating and remembering today, is the day that we look back upon this entry of Jesus into the town of the king, the town of David, Jerusalem, the center of power in the nation of Israel. And things are starting out on a good note. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is an enthronement psalm that's, that's done every year in the nation of Israel to re-enthrone the king, the Davidic king, as, as Lord and king over the nation of Israel. So there are royal and kingly connotations in all that's going on on the original Palm Sunday. It was New York City, Times Square on New Year's Eve in Jerusalem. Or it was the mall in Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day. This was the time in the, in the country when everybody was pilgrim, making pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, this great feast when they remembered God's redemption, his rescue from slavery in Egypt and deliverance into the Promised Land. So everybody who's anybody is coming to Jerusalem to be a part of the big party, to celebrate together. And it's in that context that Jesus... In a, in a profoundly subversive and subtle symbolic action, rides into the city on a colt, on a donkey. Why is this so subtle and symbolic? Zechariah 9.9, this prophecy that the, the, the Jews all knew well, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as Jesus takes up this colt and sits upon it, and as his followers throw their cloaks down on the road and palms down on the road before him, anybody who knew anything recognized the symbolic significance of this action of Jesus. That here comes the Messiah. Here comes the true king of Israel riding on a donkey into the town. The quoting of Psalm 118, the celebration of his mighty works, as it says in Luke 19, these were all signs of this claim, this royal claim. Psalm 118 said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke's um, recording of this event has the crowd saying, blessed is the king to make no mistake about what's going on here. Blessed is the king, the one who is to be enthroned in glory. Now, the Pharisees um, want to party with everybody else, but they're having some trouble with what's actually happening in front of them. They recognize that if, if this, this um, kind of wandering teacher, rabbi, called Jesus is going to be enthroned as king, that there's some trouble uh, ahead for them. And so they say to Jesus, they say to him, a teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, hush it down a little bit. We're going to get in some trouble here if this kind of keeps going on. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if these are silent, the stones will cry out. The creation will cry out with glory to the king if the stones are silent. 
just as an aside, interestingly, in thinking about this, these, these texts, uh, at, at one point soon, they do get silent. The cries of Hosanna and blessed is he go silent. And in Matthew 27, we read that when Jesus dies on the cross, there's an earthquake and the rocks are split. The stones do cry out when the people are silent. So the true king. So why such a rousing celebration? Why, why this, all this kind of symbolic action and wonderful kind of cries and, and, and resonances with all that they've, if they've longed for? Is it that they love Jesus so much? Is it that they're incredibly loyal to this teacher who's wandering around Judea and Galilee and teaching? Or maybe not. They had some expectations. They were full of expectations. The Jewish nation at this time had lived under foreign rule for, for 500 years, for a long time, awaiting the return of the king. And in their commonplace um, expectations for what would happen when the Messiah came, there was an understanding that the Messiah, there was at least a strand, not necessarily everybody believe this, but, uh, but, uh, but there's good indication that many did, that when the Messiah came, he would be a military conqueror. He would exercise military power and force to, to, to free, once again, much like Moses under the power of Yahweh, releasing uh, Israel from the bondage of a foreign power, to free Israel once again from the Roman rule and reign over them. Much like Judas Maccabeus had done 200 years earlier in throwing out Antiochus Epiphanes from the temple where he had been profaning the name of the true God. So there was all kinds of military overtones in the hearts of the people crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Peter says in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 33, how does he put it? He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I'm ready for the battle. I'm ready for the fight. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord isn't because I love Jesus so much, but it's also because Jesus represents the means to the end that I've been longing for. He represents the fulfillment of all of my expectations to finally be set free. And when Peter says, Lord, I'm going to go with you to prison or to death, he's not just saying, Lord, I'm so in love with you and you're everything to me that I'm going to follow you to death. He's saying, I'm ready to fight with you so when you're enthroned as king, I'll be seen as the second in command who takes all the glory alongside of you. There's expectations, profound expectations from the people of Israel that their long oppression would become, would be, would be over. But everything changes in chapter two, chapter 22, verse 54. It simply says, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. Then they seized him and led him away. There are hints of this kind of inability to understand what Jesus is doing in his life already in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? 
And Peter makes the great confession, you are the Messiah. And then what does Jesus do next? He says, well, let me tell you that the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of men and die. And what does Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside and says, look, you've got it mixed up here. This isn't the plan. This isn't what's going to happen. You're confused. And he rebukes him. He rebukes this Lord that he's just confessed to be the Messiah. He rebukes him. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. For you don't have on your mind the things of God, but the things of man. So we see a foreshadowing of this already in the ministry. And then we get to this point where where in Luke 22, Jesus and Judas, Judas comes with the, the, the soldiers. And Peter, still unable to let go of that vision, strikes the servant's ear and cuts it off in his zealous quest for the fulfillment of his expectations. But then Jesus was seized and they led him away. He was seized and they led him away. When God no longer meets my expectations, when God no longer gives me what I'm longing for, what I think I need, what I'm really in this business for, then all of the sudden, all of a sudden, I recognize my own idolatry. I recognize that actually I wasn't serving God. I wasn't following Jesus. But I was walking with him so that he could get me what I wanted. So what happens next? Three times in front of a servant girl, in front of another guy, Peter says, I don't know the man. I will die with you. I will go to prison with you. My expectations are unmet. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify Crucify him when my expectations are unmet. You see, God is on my team. God is on my team. I'm not on his team. He's on my team. And he's helping me accomplish my goals and my hopes and my dreams and my desires. And yes, Jesus, we can do this. We can do this together so that I can receive the glory of being at your right hand when we accomplish great things. There's a way in which this, the dual nature of Palm Sunday forces us to confront the reality that a lot of times we don't want to have anything to do with the God who is holy, with the God who is other, with the God who is mysterious and majestic and glorious and inexplicable and incomprehensible, with a God who will not be tamed and who will not be mastered by the people who claim to be his, his, his children. And to confront the reality that so often we replace the holy God, the God who is other than, with a God of our own making, a God of our own doing. Listen to these words from Eugene Peterson. If we have a choice, which we do, of dealing with God or an image of God, we much prefer the image. An image of God is God customized to our requirements, 
We not only have the pleasure of making the image using our wonderful imagination and skills in creative ways, but also of controlling it. The image is a God with all the God taken out of it so that we can continue to be our own gods. Making an image of God reduces God to our idea of him or who we want him to be or a way that we can use him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, turning in to crucify, crucify him. Lord, I will go with you to prison and to death, turning into, I don't know the man. Is the exposure of the reality that a lot of times we make God into an image wherein the holy God, who alone brings life, is left behind for a God who will do our bidding and meet our expectations. It's kind of like, uh, like a little boy, or, or one of us for that matter, who buys a toy that he's been longing for and hoping for, and he spends all of his piggy bank savings on it, and he brings it home, and it, and, and it works for like 20 seconds, and then it breaks. And what does he do? You know, he, he, he like stomps on it and kicks it and has no more use for it. That's kind of the, the, the picture of what's going on here from Luke 19 to Luke 23. Wasn't meeting my expectations. No longer have a need for it. Throw it out the door. It's a bit like Mandy's and my friend who says after life isn't quite measuring up to the way that she thought it should be, that all of a sudden I don't have a need for this God anymore. It's a bit like Job's friends who say, curse God and die. I don't have a need for this anymore. In the Isaiah reading, we read this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This business of recreating God in an image to serve our own purposes, of making a God who will meet our expectations, of, of only serving a God who will pursue my dreams and my desires is simply another way of saying, I will be God. And the indictment against us is that each one of us has turned to our own way. Each one of us has taken that transition from serving the holy God to serving ourselves. But here's the amazing thing as we draw to a close is that though we're prone to making God in our own image, though we're prone to um, longing for a God who meets our expectations, in one sense you could call us terrible fair-weather fans of the God that we proclaim. God, in the midst of this story, in an overwhelming, incomprehensible, steadfast love, is foregoing the meeting of our needs, desires, wishes, and expectations out of an incredible love for us and doing something for us that was so much more needed, so much more basic, so much more life-giving than any of the little dreams and desires and hopes that we might have pinned our trust in God upon. By absorbing upon himself 
the just consequences of our image-making of himself. By exchanging with us our guilt, our shame, our pettiness, and taking it upon himself on the cross of Calvary. The King of glory about whom we sang as we were shouting out the hosannas, humbles himself and in great love pours out his life so that we who thought we had the right idea could be healed and changed and made new at the deepest level of who we are. In not serving our agenda, in not being our little genie in a bottle, God does something far greater than anyone, Peter, the crowd, or you and me, could ever hope for, could ever have longed for, so that we can now be free in Him and have a new identity in Him. I wonder what's your Luke 22 54 moment. Maybe it's something that you're wrestling with in your life right now. Maybe it's something that, that, that you just so desperately long for or did long for that just hasn't come. That's bringing about the temptation to turn the other way. To say no longer God will be God, but, but I'm now going to have to pursue things on my own. I'm going to have to go out and grab, grab things on my own. Can you trust this God? Can you lay down your dreams and desires and expectations before this God? And in so doing, say, God is my portion. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is nothing on earth I desire besides thee. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The holy God, the other God, the mysterious, incomprehensible God. He's come. He's come to give us life. He's come to make us new. Even when our expectations go unmet. Even when we're wrestling with painful realities. This is our God. Amen.